You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. As I'm recording this, my wife and I, like so many others around the world, have been under stay-at-home orders for nearly two weeks, and I have to be honest, we're just dying to get out and go somewhere. In particular, we just love the outdoors, and we feel lucky to live in a place like New York State where we can take advantage of the many different things that Mother Nature has to offer. We have Niagara Falls, the Adirondack Mountains, the Great Lakes, that's River Valley. And there's a lot more in addition to that. There's simply plenty to see and do here. One spectacular region in New York State is the Finger Lakes, which is the location of today's story. Located in the central part of the state, this is a series of 11 elongated glacial valley lakes that are all roughly aligned in a north-south direction. If you look at a map in your state, it's almost like someone took their fingers and they just carved these lakes from north to south. Now, Cuca Lake is the only one of the Finger Lakes that has a Y-like shape to it. And prior to the arrival of railroads and automobiles, steamboats were the fastest way to move across the lake. At the southern end of Cuca Lake lies the village of Hammondsport. And at the northern end, on the eastern branch of that Y, sits the village of Penyan. It was there in Penyan on July 14, 1866, that one of its most celebrated citizens, a guy named Harry C. Morse, was born. Now, he was an only child, and that's mainly because his father, Myron, had died on August 25, 1872, leaving his wife, Ione Morse, to raise their only child alone. As Harry grew up, his uncle, Oscar Morse, who was a well-respected steamboat captain, He'd routinely take his young nephew out on the water and teach him every aspect of navigating these large ships across the lake. Harry's earliest jobs were basically as members of the crew, but as he grew older and gained more experience, he eventually became the captain of his own steamboat, the Urbana. Described in 1899 as, quote, the youngest, best-looking, and best-dressed pilot on the lake, Harry was soon given the assignment of a lifetime. When the Mary Bell, which was later rechristened the Pen Yan, was launched in 1892, 26-year-old Harry was selected to be its captain. Well, he was at the wheel when the ship, which is described as, quote, the finest boat on any inland waters in New York, encountered an incredibly violent storm. And due to her immense weight, the Mary Bell sat very low in the water, and the waves just began to crash over her lower deck. Harry Morse was able to safely steer the ship to port, 
without a single one of its estimated 500 passengers being harmed. This made Harry a bit of a local hero for his efforts, for which poet Booth Lowry, who was aboard the Mary Bell at the time, penned the poem Harry's at the Wheel. Yet, believe it or not, for all his heroic efforts, this was not the event for which Harry would be best remembered. When the wheeling craze spread across the United States in the 1890s, Harry was reported to have been the first person in Penyan to own a bicycle. Yet again, that is not what he's best known for. On February 8, 1901, the Great Falls Tribune announced that Harry had purchased a one-fourth partnership in a Utica, Montana ranch to which he soon relocated. The 16,000-acre farm was home to an estimated herd of 15,000 sheep. Wow. Yet after a number of years of raising sheep, Harry for some reason returned back home to Penyan. So clearly sheep farming was not his claim to fame. Well, back home once again, Harry returned to what he knew best, piloting steamboats. In 1914, he penned the book To Lovers and Others. Well, that was never a bestseller, so clearly that's not the thing that he's best remembered for. After that, Harry turned his focus to the world of entertainment. For a period of five years, he leased and managed the Samson Theater in Penyan, you know, showing mostly silent movies. In May of 1920, he purchased the former Shearman House on Elm Street for $10,000, which is about $127,000 today. He tore the building down and he began construction on a brand new movie theater. The 720-seat Elmwood Theater opened on May 27, 1921, and it was an immediate success. In the late 1920s, Morse installed new technology that enabled him to project talking movies, but unfortunately, competition from nearby theaters, which were open on Sundays, began to eat away at his profits. You see, the blue laws in Penyan forbid him from doing the same. So Harry approached the Board of Trustees with a petition that was signed by 2,072 of the 3,152 registered voters in Penyan, requesting that his theater be allowed to stay open on Sundays. On September 27, 1929, he got his wish. Be it ordained that the Elmwood of Penyan Incorporated, under the management of H.C. Morse, hereafter be permitted to exhibit motion pictures in the village of Penyan on the first day of the week, after two o'clock in the afternoon. This ordinance shall take effect immediately. Harry Morse would operate the Elmwood Theater until his death on January 15, 1936, after which it would change hands several times before closing in 1970. He was survived by his wife Janet and their daughter Rosemary. And there you have it. A lifetime of hard work and a tremendous amount of success. Yet the one thing that Harry Morse would forever be remembered for has not been mentioned yet. His most memorable event occurred when he was just seven years old. August 27, 1873 was a beautiful day when Harry and his mom went fishing near Cuca Lake's Brandy Bay. Mrs. Morse set anchor a short distance from the shore and she cast her line out from one side of the boat. As she patiently waited for a nibble, Harry peered out over the other side and gazed into the crystal clear water below. Then suddenly Harry jerked his head back into the boat and he let out a painful scream. Mrs. Morse turned around to discover that her son's face was covered in blood. 
She then glanced down and saw a large fish flopping around on the floor of the boat. A person on shore suggested that Mrs. Morse take an oar and hit the fish with it. And she did exactly that and she put the fish out of its misery. Mrs. Morse quickly rowed the boat into shore where, with the help of onlookers, she was able to care for Harry's wounds. If it weren't for the fact that there were eyewitnesses to what had happened, no one would have believed what had just taken place. While Harry was leaning over the edge of the boat, an 8-pound or 3.6-kilogram trout leaped out of the water and grabbed a hold of his nose. Panicking, he quickly pulled his head back and upon doing so, the fish let go and fell to the floor of the boat. Yes, Harry Morse had done the seemingly impossible. He caught a fish with his nose. Word quickly spread around town, and Dr. J.C., or John Coleman Mills, took two photographs to prove to the world that this event really did happen. The first, which can be found on the Library of Congress website, is a stereogram of Harry and his mother with a fish hanging down between them. The second, and far more popular, was the photograph of Harry alone with a fish hanging to his right, titled, Harry C. Morse, the Little Trout Fisher. Hundreds of copies were sold within the first week alone. The story then quickly spread to newspapers around the globe, and Harry's story would soon become a legend. He would carry the scars from that bite to his nose for the remainder of his life. On September 4, 1873, the Yates County Chronicle wrote, quote, Such a thing as this was never heard of before in this quarter of the world, and we are aware needs to be well vouched for it to be believed. Of its truth, there is no shadow of a doubt. Although a wonderful fish story, it is not fishy in any dubious sense. Harry Morse was a heroic steamboat captain, a sheep rancher, an author, and a successful theater owner. But he would forever be remembered for those few seconds when a fish took hold of his nose. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. And now here's a mutual note for you. Say, when you feel sluggish and headachey because you need a laxative, chew Phenomint, the delicious chewing gum laxative. It's wonderderfully different. Phenomint is different because you chew it, and different because it removes mostly waste, not good food. You see, Phenomint does not work in the stomach where food is being digested, does not take away a lot of the good food you need for energy. Doctors know that Phenomint works chiefly in the lower tract where it removes mostly waste, not good food. You feel fine, full of life and energy. So do as millions do. Get delicious Phenomint, F-E-E-N-A-M-I-N-T, for yourself, for your children. That commercial for Phenomint is from the December 21st, 1953 broadcast of the radio show Counter Spy. This particular episode was titled The Case of the Diamond Thieves. The series star Doug McLaughlin is a chief of the United States Counter Spies, a fictional governmental agency that engaged in counterintelligence against the country's enemies. During World War II, plots involved counterintelligence against the Axis powers. After the war ended, the focus shifted to the Cold War and later to a wider set of illegal activities, including narcotics, illegal alcohol, and, as the title of this episode implies, diamond theft. The show premiered on NBC's Blue Network, which later became ABC, on May 18, 1942, then moved to NBC in 1950, and lastly to the Mutual Network in 1953. 
its final episode broadcast on November 29, 1957. As for phenamin, it was a popular laxative in chewing gum form that contained phenolphthalein, the same active ingredient that was found in the original formulation of X-Lax. Phenolphthalein was first synthesized in 1871 by Ada von Baer, a German chemist who would later be awarded the 1905 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his lifetime of work in the field. Well, phenolphthalein proved to be a poor synthetic dye, but it was found to be an excellent pH indicator, one that is still used in chemistry labs today. The story goes in the early 1900s, Hungary had an incredibly poor grape harvest. As a result, large quantities of wine had to be imported, some of which turned out to be adulterated. So government officials sought a way to distinguish genuine Hungarian wines from the rest. That's unknown who first came up with the idea, but it was concluded that Hungarian white wines should have a small amount of phenolphthalein added to them. In this way, since phenolphthalein is a pH indicator, buyers could simply add a base to a small sample of the wine, and it would turn pink if it was genuine. The imitations, of course, would lack the phenolphthalein, and they would not change in color. At this point, the telling of the story diverges. In one version, it has been said that phenolphthalein was in fact added to the Hungarian wines, and it caused a massive outbreak of diarrhea across the nation. The other version implies that this never actually happened. Instead, Zoltan Vamasi, who is at the Pharmacology Institute of the University of Budapest, he successfully tested the wine tainted with phenolphthalein on laboratory animals. Next, Vamasi and Akali became human guinea pigs, and of course they tried it for themselves. It was then that they discovered the laxative properties of phenolphthalein. Phenamin is still manufactured today, although it is very difficult to find. After it was discovered that phenolphthalein may be a possible carcinogen, the formulation of phenamin, X-lax, and similar products was in fact changed. So here's a question for you. The Beatles had a total of five songs banged from being broadcast on both radio and television by the BBC. You know, that's the British Broadcasting Corporation. Can you name the first of their songs that was banned? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer to this question at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that made the papers many years ago. 45-year-old German grocer Henry J. Steinberg operated a store at the corner of Glenmore and Georgia Avenues in Brooklyn, New York. On New Year's Eve of 1899, he told his wife of seven weeks that he needed to go out and make a call. It was late, so she went to sleep in their apartment that was over the store. Now, located in the back of the store was a small room where Steinberg's 19-year-old employee, Henry Meyer, slept. So early on the morning of the new year, Meyer came in and found his employer asleep in his bed. He decided not to wake him, and he simply got into the bed beside him. Well, Meyer later awoke and opened the store as scheduled. He then went in to wake up Steinberg, but was unable to do so. He soon realized that he was dead and ran upstairs to let his wife know. And when the police arrived, they found a bullet had passed through his left breast, and they discovered a revolver by his side. On a nearby table was a letter from Steinberg to his wife, complaining about how poorly his business had been doing. Moving on. Vincent P. Smith, a 51-year-old Pennsylvania Railroad car inspector, filed suit for annulment of his marriage to 54-year-old Nettie A. Smith after he learned that her first husband, Harry C. Smith, was still alive. And yes, both husbands had the same last name of Smith. Mrs. Smith said she hadn't seen her first husband in 35 years. The two had lived in Frederick, Maryland until they separated, after which she returned to her former home in Derry, Pennsylvania. Believing that her first husband was dead, she married a guy named William Scully. Now she's to meet up with Scully after he went out to California, but he was killed in an earthquake. Quote, Seemed like I was destined to be a widow twice, Mrs. Smith stated. After that, she moved to Wall, Pennsylvania, where she operated a boarding house and met her third husband, that's Vincent Smith. The two were married on September 11th of 1907. Well, her current husband heard reports that his wife's first husband was still alive. So he traveled from their home in Swissville, Pennsylvania to Frederick, 
where he met a man who provided him with information confirming that that was true. Realizing that his wife was still married to her first husband, Vincent Smith filed for an annulment shortly after their silver wedding anniversary. Quote, I'd never feel right making up with Nettie now, Smith told the press. Even if she should get a divorce after the annulment and be free to marry me again, I couldn't go through with it. The annulment was granted by the court on February 20th, 1935. And in our final story for today, students at the University of California at Berkeley came up with a unique approach to dating in May of 1935. It was all the idea of senior Eldon Grimm, and it became known as the, quote, send a dame chain letter. Basically, it worked like this. A male student would receive a list of five female students. After he made a date with the first girl on the list, he would cross her name off and add that of another girl. He would then send his updated list of five to one of his male friends who would do the same exact thing. Grimm calculated that with 6,000 young women enrolled, each would get 26,000 dates from the 10,000 men on campus. That's assuming the chain remained unbroken. Miss June Sears said, quote, I think it should be adopted at all universities, she continued. It would certainly bring the students together. Sorority member Miss Mary Kirk commented, quote, It looks as though we might be chained for life. She figured she could probably handle 26,000 dates, but at the rate of one date each day, it may take her 70 years to do so. So early in the podcast, I had asked you which Beatles song was the first to be banned from being played on BBC radio and television. As I had mentioned, they had a total of five songs banned. They were, and these are in no particular order, Come Together, I Am the Walrus, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, Back in the USSR, although that wasn't banned until the first Gulf War, but the first was the one with perhaps the most famous final musical chord in pop history. A Day in the Life from their 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. A spokesman for the BBC at the time said, quote, We have listened to this song over and over again, and we have decided that it appears to go just a little too far and could encourage a permissive attitude to drug-taking. While most would assume that it was a line, I'd love to turn you on, that got the song banned, it turns out that that is not the case. They objected to the portion where Paul McCartney describes waking up, catching a bus, having a smoke, and then drifting off into a dream. On Friday, May 26, 1967, at a dinner being held in the home of their manager, Brian Epstein, to celebrate the release of the Sgt. Pepper album the following Thursday, McCartney told the press, quote, The BBC have misinterpreted the song. It has nothing to do with drug-taking. It's only about a dream. John Lennon added, the laugh is that Paul and I wrote this song from a headline in a newspaper. It's about a crash and its victim. He added, How anyone can read drugs into it is beyond me. Everyone seems to be falling overboard to see the word drug in the most innocent of phrases. Well, if you're curious, today the BBC claims that it no longer bans any song. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I'll keep this short because I'm recovering from a cold and, you know, I'm straining a bit to speak but I do hope that everyone out there is doing well during this pandemic, wherever you may be. Things have been a bit crazy here, as I'm sure they are for many of you. In my case, attempting to teach both earth science and physics remotely to my students, it really has proven to be quite challenging, but I have to admit it is coming along. 
Anyway, thanks again for listening and hope you tune in the next time. Bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.